Frankenstein, or the Modern Prometheus, is a 1818 novel written by English author Mary Shelley. It recounts the story of Victor Frankenstein, a young scientist who creates a sapient creature through an unorthodox scientific experiment. Though Frankenstein is infused with elements of the Gothic novel and the Romantic movement, some scholars have argued for it as the first true science fiction story. The novel has had a considerable influence on literature and on popular culture, spawning a complete genre of horror stories, films, and plays. Since the publication of the novel, the name Frankenstein has often been used erroneously to refer to the monster rather than to its creator. Thank you for tuning in to the Global Novel. I'm Claire Hennessy. With me today is Dr. Glynis Ridley, professor of English at University of Louisville. She is the author of Clara's Grand Tour: Travels with a Rhinoceros in 18th-Century Europe, which was the winner of the Institute of Historical Research Prize. Welcome back to the show, Glynis. Thanks, Claire. I'm pleased to be here again. So you mentioned you've taught the novel for many times, right? I've certainly taught this class at both the undergraduate and the graduate level. I, I think, as part of our discussion, we'll we'll get onto why that is and how the novel can sustain so many different readings. Great. Well, to begin with, Frankenstein is a frame story written in epistolary form. It documents a fictional correspondence between Captain Robert Walton and his sister Margaret Walton Saville. The story takes place in the 18th century when Robert Walton is a failed writer who sets out to explore the North Pole in hopes of expanding scientific knowledge. During the voyage, the crew spots a dog sled driven by a gigantic figure. A few hours later, the crew rescues a nearly frozen and emaciated man named Victor Frankenstein, who has been in the pursuit of the gigantic man observed by Walton's crew. Frankenstein starts to recover from his exertion. He sees in Walton the same obsession that has destroyed him, and recounts a story of his life's miseries to Walton as a warning. So it is in this way that the recounted story serves as the frame for Frankenstein's narrative. Glynis, could you share more on how this narrative structure, executed by this this epistolary feature, effectively delivers its light motif, especially on this misplaced ambition of scientific quest? Thanks, Claire.、Um, I'm pleased we're starting with the narrative structure. Because those who know the story only through various movie adaptations might be surprised by how it starts, which, as you've said, which is from, with letters from the Arctic explorer Robert Walton to his sister, who we imagine is comfortably back home in Britain. So、mm-hmm. these letters establish a narrative frame for the whole novel, which we're to understand is a story told by Victor Frankenstein, which also includes within it the story that the Monster creature has told to to him,、um, mm-hmm. and it's Frankenstein whom Walton and his crew rec- rescue from the Arctic ice. So novels told us a series of letters. So called epistolary fictions became a popular form for the novel during the mid eighteenth century. So、mm-hmm. I think immediately there would have been something very reassuring about the narrative frame to Mary Shelley's first readers. And it's this familiar narrative form that then provides a huge contrast with the incredible story that Victor Frankenstein tells to Robert Walton, and that Robert Walton in turn puts in writing to his sister. 
if we put ourselves in the position of Robert Walton for a moment and, and then of his sister, we can perhaps begin to understand how effective this plot device of the narrative frame is. Imagine somebody told you that they had created a living being from body parts and that their creation was very much alive and sentient. You'd, you'd think they were imagining things. You'd think they were mad as Walton initially wonders if this is the case with Victor Frankenstein. And while we don't see Walton's sister's reaction to Walton's letters, we can imagine she'd be concerned about her own brother's state of mind, which brings mm -hmm. us to your question about the scientific question, the heart of the novel. We all know it's a principle of scientific experiments, of course, that they can be replicated. And we ask to see evidence of scientific claims. We want mm -hmm. to understand the method to see if it can be repeated and produce the same results. And part mm -hmm. of what the novel does, I think, is to put us in the position of asking how much we would believe of Victor Frankenstein's story if we had it told to us or read it in a letter without seeing the evidence for ourselves. Exactly. So let's talk about what makes the novel a prototype or precursor of modern science fiction. My reading experience of Frankenstein has always been a mixture of fascination and confusion. On the one hand, there is always the excitement of almost observing how the world's first science fiction was getting written beyond, you know, what it is about. On the other hand, I also feel one can easily get confused by its strangeness and awkwardness, as there is this inevitable comparison with all the more dazzling and, you know, whimsical effects and plots that we receive from today's science fiction, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think in order to appreciate the literary value of this novel, the key um, lies in understanding the historical context of the creation of, uh, of the novel Frankenstein. So could you please walk us through the origin story of its creation so we get a sense of its context? Certainly. And I, I think the creation of this novel is possibly the most famous origin story in Western literature, um, definitely one of the most atmospheric. We know that in June 1816, uh, Mary and Percy Shelley were staying in Switzerland. They were visiting the poet Lord Byron at the Villa Diodati near Geneva. Bad weather in the middle of the month kept everyone indoors. So you have mountainous, sublime scenery out the window, but foul weather outside. The only illumination indoors is candles and the firelight. And also present were Byron's physician, John William Polidori, and Mary's mm -hmm. stepsister, Claire Claremont, who had an affair with Byron. So given these interpersonal dynamics, I think it's no wonder that events at the villa have generated their own film and TV representations. Um, in her preface to the 1831 edition of Frankenstein, Mary Shelley recounts a number of conversations between Byron and Percy Shelley on what she calls, quote, the nature of the principle of life, unquote. And by this, she's generally taken to mean that Byron and Percy Shelley were talking about competing contemporary theories about what distinguishes the living from the dead. Um, does the so-called life principle in here, in organic matter? If so, can you point to it in the anatomy theatre um, as something physical? 
to put it very crudely, can an anatomist show the soul? Or is the life principle an invisible substance analogous to electricity, literally an animating spark that can only be known by its effects? And Mary Shelley's account of the sequence of these conversations and who was present differs a little from the account written by Polidori, but it's agreed that it was Byron himself who proposed a ghostwriting contest. And incidentally, from Byron and Polidori, we have a vampire story from, from this, same, uh, this same ghostwriting contest that produced Frankenstein. So Mary Shelley tells us that she had a number of sleepless nights thinking about theories of this so-called life principle. And she arrived at an idea of what she calls, and I'm going to quote her exact words here, quote, a supremely frightful human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world, end quote. Now, um, you've rightly pointed out that the novel that resulted from this doesn't have any of the dazzling effects we associate with science fiction today. There's no world building, for example. But I think we can see from Mary Shelley's comment about her creation that for her, the true horror and strangeness of her story lies in a man believing he can exercise a godlike power of creation. And if um, your listeners are fans of science fiction, they'll recognize this is a fairly prevalent motif in science fiction. The individual who seeks to push beyond the bounds of what's known or what's acceptable, to assume the sort of power that um, in classical mythology has to be stolen from the gods. I mean, after all, Mary Shelley subtitled Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus, after the Greek mythological figure who stole fire from the gods to give to man. And the Greek myth warns us that for all the benefits such an action might yield, there's always a terrible price to be paid. Indeed. Well, what do we know about Mary Shelley, especially her as a woman writer at the time? The first edition of the novel was published anonymously in London uh, in 1888. So it must have been not very easy for a woman to publish in 19th century England, who was also, as far as I know, competing with male contemporaries, right? Yes. You know, we could say that Mary Shelley was famous or even infamous before she was born. Um, because she was the child of two very high-profile 18th-century writers and, as we would say today, um, activists, uh, William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, Godwin was a novelist, uh, also famous for a work of social and political theory called Political Justice from 1793, and Wollstonecraft was most famous or notorious for her vindication of the rights of woman from 1792. And interestingly, both of her parents saw marriage as an oppressive institution for women, but the couple did marry. Um, This in itself caused a minor scandal because Wollstonecraft already had a daughter by a man called Gilbert Imlay, And her marriage to Godwin made it clear that she'd never been married to Imlay, even though she had a child with him. Now, Wollstonecraft died 10 days after the birth of Mary. And a few years later, Godwin married his neighbor, who had two children already, and who would 
then have a child with Godwin. So the dynamics of the household have long been a source of fascination for biographers because Mary seems not to have got on with her stepmother. We know that Godwin was a great intellectual but emotionally distant, but he did let Mary read very widely, way beyond what was thought acceptable for a young woman. And her stepmother seems to have been jealous of Mary's cleverness. Now, Mary first met the poet Percy Shelley when he and his wife came to dinner with Godwin in November 1812. Shelley was a huge admirer of Godwin and Wollstonecraft, and Percy and Mary finally eloped to France in July 1814 when Mary was just um, 17. So Percy was cut off by his very rich father, Godwin felt betrayed. So you can see that Mary's young life was a series of dramas. And in the middle of it, she'd grown up exposed to all the latest literature and ideas, taking in all the conversations at her father's. And it was perhaps natural to her to believe that she too would be a a writer. Most poignantly, perhaps, we have Godwin's letters to her after each of a series of miscarriages that she would have. And Godwin's advice was to engage in as little mourning as possible. So this woman with this passionate, tumultuous life knew only a very dispassionate father and a fairly mercurial husband who also seemed removed from the anguish she felt on losing their children. And Frankenstein comes out of this (laughs) amazing cauldron. And as you say, was first published anonymously in, in 1818. I think this was the anonymous publication was perhaps less to do with any hesitation Mary felt as a woman writer and more to do with a recognition of a complex political and social landscape in Britain at the time. You've got the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars when the political establishment in Britain wanted a maintenance of the status quo. You've got Mm -hmm. conservative publications generating resistance to new scientific and social ideas. And I think Mary played it safe by publishing anonymously, given that her name would have been a huge distraction on the title page, though she did dedicate the novel to her father, William Godwin. Right, right. Well, how was the novel received at the time of its publication? What aspects of the novel did readers enjoy at the time? Yeah, you you know, it's funny, we could look at the reception of a lot of earlier texts today um, that that now seem to us to be groundbreaking and significant. And we can realize that they attracted relatively little attention on first publication. Um, Frankenstein's perhaps a good example of this. The first reviews are slightly critical, though by no means the worst one could one could imagine. Um, the conservative quarterly review objected to the novel having more than one unreliable narrator. I guess that's Walton and Frankenstein in the first instance. But the same reviewer liked what was seen as an accurate reflection of the state of Arctic exploration. Um, But the reviewer then warned readers that details about the creation of the creature would disgust them. Um, There was a similar conclusion in the popular Edinburgh magazine. The best review probably came from the novelist Sir Walter Scott, 
who was writing in Blackwood's magazine. And it's important here to note that Scott was, at the time, a very well-known poet. We don't know him so much as a poet today. He was a hugely popular novelist, so his opinion carried a lot of weight. And Scott praised the author of Frankenstein for what he called, quote, uncommon powers of poetic imagination, end quote. So I think the creation of the creature that had so disgusted conservative reviewers seems to have intrigued Scott as something fresh and original. And certainly the novel was of enough interest to a writer called Richard Brinsley Peake that Peake adapted it as a stage play called Presumption or The Fate of Frankenstein. And this was playing by 1823. Now, Peake's play makes a number of changes to Mary Shelley's text, one of which is the introduction of a comic servant called Fritz to Victor Frankenstein, which seems to foreshadow a lot of 20th century adaptations. But we can see in the title of Peake's play, maybe, um, Presumption, that what early 19th century readers were latching onto was the overarching theme of man playing God. Right. Well, what literary qualities did Frankenstein earn itself as the precursor of modern thriller, science fiction, gothic novel, or even horror stories? Wow. Um, I think we can see elements of all these things in Frankenstein. Um, right. What occurs to me about all of the genres you've mentioned is that they all have one thing in common. Uh, we've got typically a protagonist or small group of protagonists who are privileged to information that no one else knows or the information that everybody wouldn't believe if they did know it. And that forces the protagonist to act either to avert greater tragedy or to pursue revenge or, or both. Um, there's a quest story or several quest stories running through Frankenstein Um Frankenstein's quest for knowledge, uh, the creature's quest for recognition from its creator, um, Walton's quest to understand the truth of what he's heard. And that quest theme is one of the oldest story structures. And I think it unites everything from modern thrillers to, to horror stories, where the physical journey is typically also a journey to greater understanding. Science fiction, of course, has added to this idea, um, the idea of quests across time and space. Now, Frankenstein certainly covers a lot of physical ground from the Arctic to Europe. Uh, but it also maybe wouldn't be a stretch to see in the character of Victor Frankenstein a precursor of the scientist as protagonist figure who reappears in later science fiction time travel narratives, such as H.G. Wells' 1895 fiction, The Time Machine. The Time Machine. Of course, just another fascinating early science fiction that deserves a full episode on the global novel. <laughs> I can't wait to interview you on that. That would be fun. So what are some of the important narrative features that you would like to highlight to beginners of, of the Victorian novel as represented by Frankenstein? Um, so I think with hindsight, um, we could maybe see Frankenstein as 
bridging a couple of traditions. So we've, we started out by talking about the way the narrative frame refers back to the popularity of epistolary fiction in the mid to late mm-hmm. 18th century. But the mid 18th century also saw the birth of Gothic horror. And by the end of the 18th century, one of the most... If you have enjoyed this episode and want to listen to the entire episode, you can subscribe at theglobalnovel.com slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening. 